Well, good morning. My name is Scott, and I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new here and you happen to come in after the greeting time, uh, let me just say to you on behalf of the congregation, welcome. We're glad that you've come and hope that this time will be encouraging for you. Your presence here, especially on a day like today, has already encouraged us. This morning we are continuing with, and in fact, uh, bringing to completion our study of the book of Acts, which we started in January of 2015, if you can believe it, and we've been steadily working at that ever since then with a couple little detours here and there. I believe, and your comments along the way have supported that belief, but I believe this has been a very helpful study for us as a congregation as we've been able to take a, a long and hard look at, you know, what happened next after the resurrection, after Jesus returned to his Father in heaven. And as has been pointed out several times on our way through, even though Jesus is with his Father in heaven, uh, we have seen in these pages the continuing mission of Jesus as carried out and carried on through God's Spirit-born and spirit-filled and spirit-impelled people, starting in Jerusalem and moving outward from there to Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. In other words, we've seen in this book the establishment and the spread of the church that grew up out of the preaching of the gospel. Indeed, we see our own roots in this book. We have seen the story that is the prequel to our own stories. Because after all, we are... Uh, in essence, we are the Acts 29, of which Acts 1 to 28 are the precursor. That's sort of the grand big picture of what's going on in this book. Now, if we kind of dial that in a little bit, uh, what we'll be seeing this morning is the way that uh, Luke wraps things up. And he brings to a conclusion the particular account, which we've been following ever since chapter 21, of Paul's arrest in various trials and finally his transport to Rome. And with this arrival in Rome, we are seeing, as one commentator puts it, Paul's arrival at the premier city of the ancient world. In other words, if your mission was to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, then Rome was the place that you wanted to be. It was the crossroads of the world in that day, and so finally getting there was at one and the same moment a culmination of the church's mission from one perspective, but also was the beginning of the rest of the story. It was the dawning of a new day in the history of the church. At any rate, that is what we've been looking at. That is what we are still looking at. And while the accounts we've seen here are only the briefest of summaries of all that happened, they are nevertheless enough to give us a clear picture not only of how God got Paul to Rome, but also what he did for him and through him once he was there. So with that as our introduction, let me ask you to please pray with me, and then we'll dive in to what remains in this book. Father in heaven, thank you so much for conceiving of this story, born of your plans and purposes before the foundation of the earth. Thank you for then enacting this story, for bringing it to pass in space and time. Thank you now for continuing this story and for writing us into it. 
Help us to hear now your voice speaking loudly and clearly to us in these verses. Show us yourself, and then please show us ourselves in that light. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we turn to this final passage in Acts, the first thing I want to draw your attention to is Paul's arrival in Rome. After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Puteoli, and there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage, and when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Two things there that I want you to see in these opening verses. The first one seems rather obvious uh, at one level, but it is the simple fact that Paul made it to Rome. Again, that may not seem all that spectacular of an achievement, but when you consider the trajectory of Paul's life and some of the hardships he's faced, it really is quite an achievement. Uh, Paul provides his own summary of just some of the difficulties he's faced over the years. In his second letter to the Corinthians, maybe you remember reading this, where he writes, But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast of that. Are, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles. Danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. In short, Paul has been through an unusual number of difficulties in his relatively brief life, including his most recent run-ins, which resulted in his being beaten by his own people, taken into custody, and and so in that, just barely escaping this uh, suicide plot against his life by multiple assassins, which then led to his being tried by various rulers, always with the specter of being handed back over to the Jewish authorities hanging over him, and that would surely have meant his death. And so from a human perspective, it really is nothing short of amazing that Paul has lived as long as he has. And in spite of it all, he has finally made it to Rome. And yet from another perspective, from a divine perspective, there's nothing surprising here at all. At least two times now, God has revealed first indirectly and then later on directly that that his plan, that he had a plan for Paul and that that plan included his making his way to Rome. And Paul's conversion 
Uh, at his conversion in Acts 9, God revealed to Paul's handler, so to speak, a guy named Ananias, that Paul was his chosen instrument to carry God's name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And then at the other end of Paul's life, in Acts 23, which we saw not that long ago, we see God defining more precisely which kings and which Gentiles he had in mind when through Jesus God assured Paul that he would witness and testify to the truth about the Lord Jesus in Rome. We've already seen Paul appear before several Roman authorities outside of the capital city, but now he's come to Rome proper where Nero himself awaits. So Paul's in Rome against all odds, humanly speaking, and yet exactly according to plan from a divine perspective. And if there ever was a lesson uh, that we can take away from the book of Acts, it's this, that God's sure and certain purposes are regularly attired in the garb of always broken, often mundane, and occasionally glorious humanity and are played out through events that at times seem to be anything but purposeful going forward, but which are often seen to be full of purpose when we look back on them. And we haven't even reached the ultimate looking back moment yet. We won't have that view until we get to heaven, but even now, even here, within the limited sweep of human history that we know, and with the even more finite perspective of our own brief lives, we can often see order and design and purpose amidst the chaos. So Paul made it to Rome, and he made it right on schedule. The second thing I want you to see in these opening verses is not only the fact that Paul made it to Rome, but also the immediate circumstances in which his arrival took place. As you've already noted, over the entire course of his life, Paul has been through a number of difficulties and hardships. But what I want you to see uh, is how right here, right, right at the end, as he's finally making it to Rome, there are a number of things that took place in a relatively short space of time and which, taken together, I think would have been greatly encouraging to Paul. It would have assured him of God's purposes and presence and provision for him. In other words, I think what, part of what's going on here with all these events most recently is God is, is, is providing a little bonus for Paul, like kind of a supplemental in, injection of God's assurance at the very end here. Firstly, there's the fact of this most recent shipwreck, which Woody told us about, in which no one, no one should have survived this wreck, and yet miraculously, everyone did. And God told Paul that would be the case in advance. And then Paul has barely gotten uh, on shore. And he's barely escaped that disaster when he's bitten by a poisonous viper that would have killed any other person. And yet he shakes it off. And nothing happens as God preserves his life yet again. And we saw how the effect of that on the Maltese people was to make them think that Paul was a god. But the effect on Paul surely would have been very different demonstrating to him yet again, not that he was God, but that God was with him and had his back, was going to provide for him all the way to Rome and did some. Two events, one right after the other, that signaled to Paul the truth, that until God is finished with you, you are absolutely invincible. And then if that weren't enough, when Paul arrives in Italy... He has what I believe would have been two further and pleasant surprises waiting for him. The first surprise was that as soon as he lands in this strange place, to which he'd never been, he came across some brothers 
in this place called Puteoli, where modern day, I'm going to say this wrong, Pozzuoli, I think, that's it. It's roughly eight miles southwest of Naples, or sorry, northwest of Naples and about 150 miles south of Rome. But here's Paul, he's just barely set foot on this totally foreign soil, and the next thing you know, he comes across some fellow Christians. Now, how they got there, we don't know, but that all by itself would have been encouraging. To know that there are people who had gone ahead of you, to know that the gospel work to which you had given your life, as Paul had done, was advancing even in ways that you didn't know about. And now at this most unlikely of intersections, at a divinely appointed time and place, you cross paths with previously unknown brothers and sisters. And you find right there that you're not facing this situation alone. I mean, how encouraging that would be to Paul. And then this encouragement was further amplified as Paul began making his way to Rome itself. Because while he was still some ways away from the city, apparently believers from Rome, who had somehow gotten word of Paul's arrival and knew who he was and made their way south to catch him on the way up and to greet him at two spots. The Forum of Appius, which was 43 miles outside of Rome, and a spot called the Three Taverns, about 33 miles outside of Rome. So are you getting the picture here? I mean, using geography that maybe we're more familiar with, Paul's journey on foot, once he got off the boat, was about 150 miles, some say a little less, some say a little more. But it's something like going from here to Biloxi, Mississippi, on foot, over a number of days. And so Paul sets out for... Biloxi from Baton Rouge, and when he gets to be somewhere around Purlington, he comes across some Christians from Biloxi who, in anticipation of his arrival, have come 43 miles to meet him. And then he gets a little further to, say, Bay St. Louis, and a second group of Christians has come along to meet him there, and they join the party, and together they all go into Rome. So he's delivered from a shipwreck in a terrible storm. He's delivered from a poisonous snake bite. He meets Christians straight away when he gets off the boat. And then at two more points along this journey to Rome, he meets groups of believers who've come out to greet him along the way, accompanying him for the rest of the trip. I mean, how encouraging would that be for Paul? Surely God is with him. Surely God has brought him to this place. He hasn't just shown up. And so it is that Paul arrives in Rome, and after a short break, he calls together the local leaders of the Jews to try and arrange for a meeting between himself and an even larger contingency of Jews, a bigger meeting. Here's what happened, picking up at verse 17. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had, nothing, I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. So again, here's Paul, newly arrived in town. Uh, Interesting, you know, somehow he manages to get in touch with all the right people very quickly. And and Paul, a prisoner, mind you, Paul calls this meeting uh, in the city and they show up. 
And the purpose of this first meeting is to introduce himself and to hopefully set up a larger meeting, as I've said, where he can address his Jewish brothers and sisters concerning the Lord Jesus. And that has been his custom all the way through the book of Acts, right? We've seen this a number of times. Wherever Paul has gone, his first move has typically been to go to the local synagogue and talk with whoever showed up, whoever was willing to listen about the things that God had shown him as a fellow Jew regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. No matter how long he had been ministering, no matter how far he traveled on the mission field, no matter how many times actually he had been rejected, Paul never ever gave up on his Jewish brothers and sisters. He might have stopped reaching out to them at a certain place after they had shown their lack of interest or worse rejection of him. But that still didn't stop him the next time around, the next time he moved on to a new place from reaching out to them again. Why did he do it? What kept Paul coming back to them? He did it because of the hope of Israel. That's why he's in chains. And it's also why he's dying to speak to his Jewish brothers and sisters. Because of the hope of Israel. Now what does that mean? What was the hope of Israel? What were they hoping for? What had they been hoping for? When thinking about that, let me first say this. um, With regard to that word hope. In the Bible's economy, when the Bible talks about hope, it is not talking about a thing that might or might not come to pass. Uh, That's how we use the word typically, but it's not how the Bible usually uses the word. And it's certainly not the use that we see here. The hope talked about here is not something that may or may not happen. It's something that will surely come to pass, but has not yet done so. So there was a hope that God's people have been hanging on to and waiting for for a long time, for a very long time. What was that hope? What was that not as yet realized certainty For the people of God. I'll tell you what it was. It was the coming of a promised deliverer. It was the coming of one who would fix everything that was broken. Who would restore everything that was lost. Who would defeat the last and greatest enemy, death itself. It was the hope contained in God's words to the serpent, Satan, in Genesis 3. Saying that one day someone would come, an eventual descendant from Eve, who, though wounded himself, would crush Satan's head and bring an end to his reign. It was the hope found in the promises to Abraham that God would bless him and make him a great nation and through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. It was the hope foreshadowed in the establishment of the kingdom of Israel, the hope of a future king like David, but better, who would come and who would not fail as David did, and whose kingdom would never end, and the reign of God would cover the earth. It was the hope that answered the nagging question raised by the Old Testament sacrificial system, highlighted by the law of God. Will there ever be enough blood to satisfy the wrath of a holy and just God? It was the hope that echoed through the longing voices of the prophets as they called God's people again and again to return to him, to remain faithful to him. And to believe that he would make good on his promises and forgive and preserve and restore his exiled people. Paul understood that all of these hopes and more, all of these hopes that had been foreshadowed, all of them coalesced. They all came together in the person of Jesus Christ. Who was and is and always will be the hope of Israel. 
And Paul knew that hope had arrived. That hope had shown up and it was here and it was available and was freely an offer. And as the saying goes, like a beggar telling other beggars where he found bread, that is what Paul is all about here. It's what's driving him. what keeps driving him to tell his Jewish brothers and sisters about the Lord Jesus. So Paul, making the most of the opportunities, barely in town, he busies himself with setting up this meeting. And of course he realizes you know, that he, as he does this, he's doing this as a man in chains. And so he takes a moment on the front end to briefly explain to them that what has happened uh, with him and to assure them that he's committed no great crime, that in fact the only crime uh, he's committed, so to speak, was what we've already seen. That while he and they both shared the same hopes, Paul believed that the hope they thought was still in front of them had already shown up in the Lord Jesus. That was his crime. And so Paul shares all this with them, and then by their response, he receives one more uh, bit of news that I, I think would also have been encouraging to him. And it's uh, part of this whole thing that I think God is doing for Paul to boost his confidence as he moves into this very intimidating city. It's found there in verse 21. And they said to him, we've received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. That had to be a pretty positive thing for Paul to hear. Because, you know, while the Jews in Rome were familiar with Christianity, at at least enough to conclude that everywhere it was spoken against, they apparently didn't know anything about Paul. Which is nothing short of amazing. And this is in spite of the fact that Jews from other places were coming and going from Rome all the time. And, and none of these Jews coming from, to visit from other places had any reports about Paul. I, I think that's stunning. And it's further evidence of God's caring provision for Paul because it meant that he had at least a better chance of getting a fair hearing from the Jews in that place without them having already been prejudiced against him. So Paul wanted a meeting. Paul got a meeting. Verse 23. When they appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Please notice that when Paul had his day, when he had his chance to speak to his Jewish brothers and sisters, He used that opportunity to take them to the scriptures and to show them how the kingdom of God had arrived because the king himself, Jesus, had arrived and inaugurated that kingdom. Now there's a ton of stuff in there that we can't even begin to unpack, but what I do want you to notice and take to heart is Paul's methodology here. This is the same Paul who wrote these words to Timothy's disciple while he was in Roman custody. But he said this, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
Let me just say this. Those words are still true. The scriptures really are the word of God. They really are that profitable for all sorts of things. They really are able to make a person wise for salvation. My fear is that the evangelical church increasingly has a doctrine of scripture that is very high and a knowledge and practical use of the scriptures that is very low. We are more prone to hand people a book than we are to hand them a Bible. We're more prone to quote a famous speaker than we are to quote the Bible. We're more prone to direct people to a blog or a song or a story about a personal encounter than we are to direct them to the scriptures. And don't get me wrong, all of those other things can be good and are good and right and useful and effective. I love Tim Keller as much as the rest of you. But they ought never be a substitute for the scriptures. They ought never be the thing that we resort to because we are somehow ashamed of the scriptures, because we simply don't know how to use them, because we doubt that they are what Paul says they are, and that God can use them in precisely the way Paul expected God to use them. We can learn a lot from Paul here, and we can imitate his practice by taking people to the scriptures ourselves and showing them how they point to the Lord Jesus and what that means and why it even matters in the first place. So Paul does that with the Roman Jews, and then this is what happened. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes they've closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in turn and I would heal them. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. What was the response to Paul's efforts at taking them to the scriptures and showing them the Lord Jesus? In a word, it was mixed. Some were convinced by what he said and others disbelieved. And judging from what we've seen in the previous 27 chapters of this book, the number of those that disbelieved was surely far greater than the number of those that were convinced. And I say that because of some things that Paul has said elsewhere. And we don't really have time to go into those things, but you know there is, as we've seen before, this overall uh, general pattern of unresponsiveness of the Jewish people to the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we saw that in a previous sermon series. We saw that it was something that was the direct outworking of God's sovereign and unique purposes and plans for ethnic Israel. Chapters 9 to 11 of Romans, which we crawled through on our hands and knees, But in those chapters, Paul takes great pains to explain how God was actively engaged in hardening the hearts of his people so that they would not see and respond, which is what the Isaiah quote here in Acts is really getting at. But Paul also explained in Romans that that hardening of hearts was not permanent. It was partial. And most most importantly, 
It had a purpose. So that God's messengers, starting with Paul, might turn from the Jews to the Gentiles, and thus the gospel mission might break free from its Jewish birth clothes and be brought to the Gentiles, which is to say, to the world. And then even that turning to the Gentiles, to the world, was not the last word because God's purpose was to eventually, in His time, use the responsiveness of the Gentiles to one day provoke a godly jealousy among the Jews, as Paul writes, with the resulting turning for their own part to the Lord Jesus. That day, I believe, is still in front of us. But at any rate, we've seen that admittedly and mysterious working of God played out throughout the book of Acts. This interaction between Paul and the Jews, and we are seeing it again here at the very end, as immediately upon the heels of Paul's quotation of Isaiah, his Jewish listeners, I'm surely, surely with the exception of the few who were convinced, but the rest indicate their opinion of what Paul has been saying by leaving. They vote with their feet, and thus they do They do the very thing that Isaiah prophesied. And so Paul declares right on cue that the salvation that they're rejecting has been made available to the Gentiles and that they, unlike the Jews, would listen. So Paul did redirect his attention to the Gentiles and they did listen. Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense. He welcomed all who came to him Proclaiming the kingdom of God, teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. There's so much that could be said about those last two verses in Acts. And we can't say it all. But, you know, here's Paul. He's in chains. He is under house arrest while he waits his trial. He's with this Roman soldier who's his constant companion 24-7. He's paying his own way for two whole years. And it's surely not what Paul might have imagined or scripted for himself when he thought about taking the gospel to Rome. Surely he never imagined this would be how it happened, but in the providence of God, it turned out to be a wonderful way for it to happen. He's clothed, he's sheltered, he's fed, he's protected from angry Jews, he's free to receive visitors, to send letters, and to carry out ministry from that place. It's a hard time, but it's actually a rich time for Paul. It's a time where this man who otherwise would be constantly on the go is made to wait and has time to reflect. He has time to sit long with people. He has time to write. And through those writings, which make up much of our New Testament, to strengthen and encourage the church. Now, if you read some of the letters that Paul wrote during this season of his life, you see some of the substance and the richness of the deep work that God was doing within Paul and through Paul. Think about all that Paul has done, all that he's come through. Think about him sitting there in his rented accommodation, chained to this Roman soldier. Let that image soak in for a while and then pick up his letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians and the Philippians and Philemon and read it cover to cover and you will see how they were deeply shaped and molded by this time in Paul's life. 
Read that section at the end of Ephesians talking about Paul putting on the whole armor of God and you come across those words at the end. Keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Read Paul's letter to the Colossians and don't skip that very last little bit that we're tempted to run right past where he says, Luke, the beloved physician, greets you as says, Demas, give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember, remember my chains. Grace be with you. You think about Paul's situation here. Day after day, he gets up, washes off, I suppose, fixes a bit of breakfast, probably offers it to the soldier. Maybe a visitor or two comes by. They have a long talk. Good things are said. Hard things are said. Prayers are prayed. Scriptures are explored. He thinks. He writes. He thanks God for another day. Think about the situation for these soldiers as one by one they take their turn with Paul. They hear him speaking to people. They see him writing. They listen to his prayers, including his prayers for them, no doubt. They find themselves in conversation with him. He talks to them about Jesus. And just to be sure that they don't come away with this notion that what Paul is proposing is some sort of individualistic me and God sort of thing, isolated from the world and disconnected from wider purposes, he talks to them also about the kingdom of God. Jesus is at the center of it but it reaches out from there in every direction. He talks about Jesus and the kingdom. But this is Paul's situation. There's nothing spectacular going on here. This is day-to-day stuff. And yet this is the very work of God. This is how the gospel advanced and advances. Hear what Paul has to say about this hard but sweet time from his letter to the Philippians. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You know, it isn't the amazing finish you might expect to a story like this. We don't read about huge crowds. We don't read about mass conversions. Just ordinary, normal things. Reading, speaking, praying, writing. And as one writer pointed out, it's fascinating that the last word in Acts... Last word in Acts, it's one word in Greek translated as two in English, but the word is without hindrance. Words that were spoken about a man in chains with a message that could not be chained. 
without hindrance. This is the ordinary work of the kingdom, but it is the way that God did and still does extraordinary things. This is the place where Paul's story finishes for us in Acts. And if it was a good enough place for him to flourish, it is a good enough place for us to carry on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the continuing story of your gospel and your church is still being written, still being played out. We thank you, Father, that you have saved us and enlisted us into that great work. Please help us, Father, to um, reflect on what that means for us individually, for us as a church. Thank you, Father, that you do work through very common, ordinary means. Through prayer, through conversation, through listening, through reading, writing, speaking. All these things we can do, Father, in imitation of Paul. Please use us in these ordinary ways to do great things for your kingdom. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll take up an offering now for those that want to support the work of this church or different ministries that are supported through the church.